Welcome back to the Meeting Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Frampton, the co-founder and CEO of SalesQ. And we have a super special guest with us today, Colin Stewart from Predictable Revenue, the CEO over there. If you haven't heard of Predictable Revenue, you've been living under a rock. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Good to see you. Yeah, absolutely. So Colin, what we like to do on this show is really go over the harder stories of some of the top sales leaders and business leaders alike. And mm. we always look at their LinkedIn profiles, follow their posts, and we see how did they go from account manager one day to now the CEO of Predictable Revenue. There must have been some adversity there, but everybody doesn't really get to see that. I'm curious, like, what are some moments in your career when you went from, again, account manager, IC, sales rep? to now leading one of the most influential organizations in sales. What are some of those moments for you? It's definitely a weird career jump to go from AE. It says account manager, but I was really an AE, a closer at a very large gas welding supply company. The LinkedIn story doesn't really tell it justice. Really what I had done the last couple of roles was help companies either start a new division or start a division within a division. And so that's what I was doing at that last role was I'd grown a division from like none revenue to a couple million dollars in revenue. And then this big company snapped me up and said, Hey, we want to do this. The context there though, was I had already started working on starting what turned into predictable revenue. And so there's no magic trick to jumping from account manager to CEO other than just start your own thing. And I'd probably been working on it for about a year at that. I went from a smaller company where I was putting in 16, 17 hours a day, working hand in hand with the CEO president and learning as much as I possibly could to, I needed a job where I wasn't working 17 hours a day just to keep it going. And so that's why I took the job with a bigger company because I knew I wanted to learn to code. I knew I needed to do all this, like these like entrepreneur boot camps. I knew I, I needed to learn and I needed the space in my day to learn. And so if there was a secret, it's that it didn't just happen. It had been in the works for probably two or three years. Like I've wanted to start my own thing for a very long time. And I just finally said, fuck it. And I just started working on it. Like we legally incorporated predictable revenue or the company that turned into predictable revenue. And I still was working full-time for that last company. And in fairness, the only reason I was still there is I wanted to make sure I got my bonus and I was 240% of quota. And as an AE, I'm sure many people can relate. Like you're never sure if you're going to get that bonus that you deserve and are entitled to after you leave. Like I didn't know anything about the law or legalities or what a big company would or would not do. And so I was just like feel like I just have to turtle up and wait. And that's what I did. And while I was doing that, I was working on PR. Love it. What sparked the idea for what became predictable revenue? I'm curious. There's tons of things that you could focus on building, but what made you focus on building specifically what you ended up actually bringing to market and becoming so successful? I think I'm old enough that I was using Maximizer and Act and Goldmine back in the day as CRMs. And if you're not familiar with them, they're basically programs that you had to install on your computer and they had a database on the computer. And I remember when Salesforce launched and maybe not launched, but I think we had to look at it in 2004, 2005. So they weren't brand new, but they weren't where they are today. And I saw the trend coming that, hey, this is going to be an important thing that this company is going to be the dominant force. And what I recognized was that when we went to Salesforce, what we lost in the CRM was the productivity tool nature of Act and Maximizer. Act, Maximizer, Goldmine, any of those that you installed on your computer, they were fast. They were productivity centers for an account executive, for a closer, for any kind of salesperson. 
anybody that managed anything. My grandfather used Maximizer. And so there's sales pedigree in the family. And when we went to Salesforce to do something that you could do in Maximizer in Salesforce cost 17 clicks and page refreshes. And if you think back to 2004, 2005, this is like Internet Explorer four, five, six, something in that range. Like you're on a Windows XP box with a less than a gig of RAM. Yeah. And it's slow. And so CRM went from, had this moment where it was a sales productivity tool and it went to, and rightly as it should, a way of managers getting the dashboard so they could understand productivity, they could understand their pipeline metrics. And so for the sales management world, this was a huge explosion of, oh my gosh, we can finally get this data. But what I saw from a salesperson's perspective was we've lost this sales productivity element of it. And so that was the kind of insight that I had seen and noticed, and we'd started building that. And the first version was a CRM system, which was obviously a terrible idea. We had one customer, 18 months, it sucked. I mean, it is okay, but it just, obviously it's not still around. Made it till 30 grand in ARR. What we pivoted into was called Carp.io, and that was a sales engagement tool like Salesoft and Outreach. I think that shows a lot around, like sometimes you make the wrong bet, but it can lean into the right bets. Like I, it takes me back to when I graduated university, I always said like, I'd never work for someone. I did a marketing company that I started like doing advertising for a real estate agent. Then I ended up moving to Thailand for a month or two to try to be like oh. a digital nomad after reading Tim Ferriss's Power Work Week. And yeah, yeah. I got fired from all of my clients within two months because I took the wrong step and had the wrong thing in mind, which was maximizing my lifestyle. And in retrospect, I really should have leaned into the value I was providing to clients and trying to scale that up before trying to take that leap. But that also made me rethink like what I wanted in life and what I needed to do, which was go get a job, work for a tech company, learn. And now that success has propelled me like much, much further. And it sounds like a similar thing happened to you from an entrepreneurial front, which is like lean in, try to start solving problems. And you might not pick the right thing in the first place, but overall that's going to lead you into a certain trajectory. That's going to make you super successful. Yeah. I think I had the right insight and I just, I weaponized it and I, I did the wrong things with it. Like even with carb, we built a great tool. I just, we just never prioritized the right things at the right time. And so you can be right, but also still fail. I built a couple other tech tools on the side. We've spent a lot of money for a company that's now predominantly services revenue. We spent a lot of money on building software. And so it's this unique Venn diagram of, I spent a ton of time in customer development interviews and interviewing sales leaders and understanding what is it they want and how do they see this and how do they see that. And then I've also had the experience of helping hundreds, maybe thousands, talking to thousands of companies for sure with their like early go-to-market strategy. And like, I think our company has built over a thousand SDR teams or helped with them. Like it's a lot. And so I've seen both companies that are companies that had extreme product market fit and the market was coming towards them. And we turned on one resource and we were one person in 2015 was booking 330 or 327 meetings in month one for this one customer we had because they had such extreme product market fit the market was just coming towards them. Yeah, I've also had that company's direct competitor come to me a year later and say, hey, we want what they had. So, okay, cool. And then to see the impact of the same person, the same emails, the same list, the same process, 
produce a fraction of the results that it did for the first mover. It's been a really interesting lesson in the importance of product market fit and whether or not the market is coming towards you or walking away from you. Because I think there's a number of things that sort of need to line up for those, that early sales growth to really explode and take off. And yeah. yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. I'm sure with the current climate, things are tough right now for a mm-hmm. lot of folks. I'm sure many of the folks that are having tough times as sellers at their organizations are reevaluating right now and being like, is now the time to make the jump and to do my own thing? Or is it time to shift companies that I'm working at to maybe find something that has more product market fit in this type of environment? What advice would you give to folks that are in that moment of reflection? Now is always the best time to start a company. I would say from what I understand of the fundraising climate, now is not a great time to be looking for a series C or series B. But if you look at every kind of boom bust cycle we've had in the last, whatever, the the recession or whatever you want to call what we're in right now is probably a great time. There are deals getting done. There is venture capital for the right companies that have good entrepreneurs that have insights on product market fit. Now is an amazing time. It's also a harder time because I think the last couple of years you could raise on, you could raise a ton with very little. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it, if you can raise, that's a really strong signal, I guess I would say. And if you are thinking about starting something and you are listening to a sales or into podcast, I think the number one thing that I remember thinking was like, how do I find a tech co-founder? Yeah. And I think the thing I would, I would, if to start again, I think the number one thing I would focus on is like, what is that insight? What is that gap in the market? What is that pain that I understand deeply because I have asked the questions, because I have done my customer development interviews, because I have gone out and done the work. And I don't just mean talking to a few friends and getting a couple of commitments, going in and doing 200 interviews until you find a group of 30 people that all say, yes, uh, what you're or like, this is without unprompted, without you telling them what you're working on saying that my biggest problem is X. And that just happens to be what you're selling. And you ask, Hey, how important is that to you? And they say 10 and how satisfied are you with how you're currently solving it? And you say one or two, yeah. like that to me is the only thing that really matters. And I had no problem finding a tech co-founder because I already had revenue because everybody wants to start a tech company, but nobody wants to do the work. And I had already done the work and I had a paying customer and I had this insight. And so that made all of these things so much easier for me. And I don't mean easier, like it was easy for me, but it was, I still had to work and I still had to hustle, but it just made it attractive. Somebody to quit their job and go full-time working on a crazy idea with some idiot salesperson. Yeah, no, <laughs> it worked so, out okay. Like, like I had a little bit of an advantage when I started SalesKey because I met my co-founder six years ago in university, who's genius on the tech side, but if I didn't meet him six, six years ago, I probably would have been a little bit more difficult. But with that mm. said, before Jordan even started writing a line of code for sales queue, we already had three design partners that were like raising their hand being like, I need this. So it, for him to commit the first time to build something with me and then it fail, it was hard to convince him to be like, Hey, do you want to go on this ride again? And like how the first one went. And I think the biggest difference this time was like we were building something that people wanted that were willing to pay for it up front rather than coming up with an idea and then trying to bring it to market afterwards. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. 
hundred percent. And I think a lot of people think that's entrepreneurship is I'm just going to think of these ideas and it's good to have these ideas and have these insights. What you need to do is back them up and validate them or invalidate them more, more likely by doing customer research. And like I said, 200 interviews where you're not skewing the sample like I did, because with the first CRM company I did, I held my screenshots that I had darked it up and I was like, Hey, what do you think? And they're like, Oh yeah, it looks cool. Pat on the back. It looks really smart. Great idea. And then when I went back, I'm like, hey, we built uh, built this. Do you want to buy it? And they're like, no, I would never pay for that. Yeah, like, oh. lying lying to yourself in the moment feels good, but it's never mm -hmm. the right thing to do. You always need to be super honest with not only your customers, of course, but even more important is like yourself because you're just going to waste your time and waste their time if you don't actually go into that size wide open. Totally, for sure. One thing we like to do, call it on the Meeting Mastery podcast, is hear a little bit around like what top business leaders and sales leaders alike are really finding that is important to carry out in the deal process. Curious, from your perspective, you're seeing a ton of companies right now, how they're interacting with their clients, what they're putting an emphasis on to be successful mm -hmm. through this climate. What are you finding like really critical to, to be carrying out on, in a sales process today? Yeah, I think everybody's looking, and fair enough, I think everybody's looking very short-term right now. Yeah. We see a number of people, a number of companies pulling back on hiring and staffing and go-to-market investments. And I think that's normal in a recession like this. I think it puts a lot of pressure on everybody. I think this is pretty common across if you're part of a go-to-market team or rev team or whatever it is. I think that's a common, probably most people are probably in a similar situation. One of the things that we've learned over the last, or I've learned specifically over the last 11 years is that trying to bring a new product to market, trying to onboard a new go-to-market channel, there's four things you need to do. And especially with outbound, half your revenue is going to come from the first three and the other half is going to come from the last one. And you got to do all four, you got to do all three to get the first one. Then you got to do the fourth one to get the second half of the revenue. And that's, yeah, it's the new methodology. We haven't really talked about it too much and I'm still working on it, but it's basically meet, disco, manage, nurture. So obviously you need meetings, right? You need a, whether it's your AEs or your SDRs or whoever's booking those meetings, you need to be generating meetings with companies that aren't going to inbound to you or aren't necessarily going to click on a form fill and book some time on your calendar. And so you need a process and a way for creating these meetings. Once you have that, like, I think a lot of companies just get that and they're like, okay, we're good. Send those to the AEs and we're like we're off to the races, but what happens is the next step is you got to look at your AEs and are they doing a strong disco call? And what we see a lot is, especially in software, especially if the AE has been used accustomed to getting a high volume of inbound leads, I'm just going to whip my deck out. Let me show you my deck. And it's like the first thing that they want to pull out. And you're like, okay, sure. You want to demo the product, but probably not now. Like, I think you need to run a strong discovery process first and make sure you're asking good questions and making sure you understand where you're really at in a deal, a bit of a methodology and a process for running those disco calls. And if you have that, then the next step is making sure that you're managing your pipeline effectively. And that's customer verifiable outcomes for your pipeline stages and having a qualification methodology, whatever it is. I'm a big fan of MedPick or Medic, but you can use Bant or whatever it is. And I think those first three, if you are consistently booking meetings, if your AEs are running a consistent discovery process, and as a founder, CEO, sales manager, you're running an effective sales management process that involves one-on-ones, call review, call scoring with your AEs, 
and you're holding them accountable to following the discovery call process and the account management or and the pipeline process, that's how you get that first half of revenue from outbound. And I think the insight there is these three things are a chain link system. And a chain link system, if you break one of the links, it's going to multiply all the results by zero, right? And so those first three is how you get your first, the first half of revenue from outbound. And then what you got to consider is with outbound, you're reaching people that are, with inbound, people are motivated to come and see you, right? They're motivated because they clicked on a button to do a thing, but they may not necessarily be qualified. With outbound, you get to flip that on its head. They are hopefully qualified because you've modeled the lists and the target accounts that you're going after, after your best customers, after your biggest paying customers, after the people most likely to buy, but you're reaching them at any stage in the buying cycle. And so if you say 5% of the market is ready to buy right now, you book 20 meetings, one in 20 is going to be ready to buy right now. That means you have 19 out of 20 conversations to continue working. And this is where, if you are doing strong discovery and strong pipeline management, then you have the information you need to do a really strong nurture. And this is the 19 out of 20 meetings. If you're booking 20 meetings in a month, 19 out of 20 are going to need to be nurtured. You're going to work through them. They're going to go through your pipeline, close loss nurture, whatever your account statuses are. Having a really strong nurture program is a tiny little pot of gold that slowly fills up and produces like incredible commissions. And so if you're a seller, the nurture campaigns are where it's at. If you want to run an effective nurture campaign, you really have to have strong uh, pipeline management process so that you can tell yourself, your future self, okay, nurture next step. What am I going to do with this? And making sure you've got next steps and the next action date on every single opportunity, close, lost, or active or otherwise. And so if you are a seller, that's your little pot of gold. If you are a sales leader or somebody who's in a sales leadership role, the takeaway is that it's all four of these things. If you really want to maximize the value you're producing from outbound. And I think right now that's probably the thing that's top of everybody's mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's likely one of the biggest reasons why folks think outbound doesn't work after they've been building their company off of like a big tailwind from inbound. They switch to outbound and they don't realize that there's that third step and how the change of mindset you need in the first three. I love that. I think that's super important. Yeah, especially, yeah, you could just walk through it right from the top of the funnel. If your AEs are treating these like inbounds, like I've seen this, they're like, oh, no project in the next 90 days, bad lead. I never touch them again. And I'm like, oh, God, you're killing me. And then you look and the next AE does an amazing discovery call. And then uh, there's no follow-up. They don't book a call on the next call. There's no sales manager that's okay what step are they at i had a call with a customer the other day and it was like show me your pipeline they had 668 opportunities in their pipeline i was like these aren't real like how many of them are real ops oh probably 20. so okay well then how the hell are you managing and prioritizing what you work on because so much of the sale happens after you're on the call and the work of where you decide to spend your time and so how do you know where to spend your where to invest your time as a seller if you don't have good information and if you're an, if you're that seller sales leader, how do you know how to coach them and what to, where to direct your coaching activities and investments? If you're not, if you don't have good information, where deals are falling off and where your AE's biggest gaps are. Yeah. I even talk to a lot of sellers that will reach out to different prospects that respond from a prospecting setting being like, Hey, we don't actually have any budget. And therefore they try to disqualify them right there from an inbound side, maybe, but outbound, 
they get on the call, then they're like, hey, we don't have budget for software, but we definitely have budget to solve this specific problem. And I didn't really even know that's what you were solving. So don't be too quick, especially in this economy, to disqualify people due to no budget for software. Understand their problem set and how much willingness they are to pay for it and go from there. You'd be surprised in how many more people you can talk to. Because if you're disqualifying disqualifying people off the budget alone right now, you're not talking to anybody. That's a good thing to keep in mind. I've been through cycles like this before and nobody has budget. But if you can solve a real problem for somebody and make them money, of course there's of course there's a way, right? And to your point, if you're doing the discovery and you find that thing, this is going to be profitable for you. So it's not an OPEX hit. This is something that's going to produce a very quick ROI. And I think as a seller, understanding that and how that connects for your customers, if it does, then super critical. Yeah, exactly. Colin, really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today and share your wisdom to everybody. Hope to talk to you soon. And thanks again for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Watching call recordings on 2x speed is not only exhausting, but is also a waste of time for sales reps and leaders. With SalesQ, you can take concise notes with just a click of a button during your calls, so you can stay focused on the conversation. These notes are visible in real time, ensuring that you have all the critical information you need while it matters. After the call, the notes are automatically added to your CRM, providing your sales leader with all the information they need. Sales leaders no longer need to spend hours watching calls to identify if their coaching has been implemented. They can simply add feedback to SalesQ, and their sales team will be reminded in real time to execute on it. Sales reps can also submit evidence of their implementation of the feedback with just a click of a button, giving sales leaders an accurate picture of how the team was adopting their coaching. Want to help a specific rep improve? You can view calls where feedback was missed within your favorite call recording platform. Experience a more efficient way of managing your sales team with SalesQ.